Welcome to Talking Events, the event industry podcast brought to you by Event Industry News. Uh, tweet the podcast at Talking Events. Um, today, we're going to be talking about whether the conference sector is experiencing uh, a renaissance. Um, joining the podcast today, um, Jez Paxman, Creative and Strategy Director at Live Union. Jez, thanks for joining us. Um, Gareth Dimlow, Executive Director, Strategy and Planning at George P. Johnson. Um, gentlemen, welcome to Talking Events. Um, Let's get straight in there. Come to you first, Jez. Is the sector experiencing a renaissance? And what do we mean by that? I would argue that it is. I think um, there was a time when conferences became a sort of byword for boring. You know, people, the, the expression boring conferences or death by PowerPoint, all of those kind of hugely negative um, connotations were out there. And, you know, possibly to a degree, there's still an element of that. But I think when you look at the unbelievable energy that's coming through grassroots events, when you look at um, possibly events that sit outside of the corporate world, so I would point to things like the Do Lectures or TED or just the kind of, um, the sort of meetups that people out there every day are organizing themselves. I think there's this, this, this fantastic energy that can be called a renaissance and I think we're starting to see that filter through into the into the, the corporate space. Gareth, is there a renaissance? At the risk of getting into the semantics, I think the only area where I would perhaps disagree is that I think we're sort of teetering on the brink of the renaissance rather than right in there. In a little bit like the, the art renaissance itself, it wasn't really identified as a movement until it was kind of well underway. And I think that's where we're at at the moment. I completely agree with what Jez is saying about the world is recognizing a need to shift away from the conference as being the thing that you have to go to when you're actually on a nice three-day away trip. Um, I think people are understanding that there has to be a a strategic um, responsibility in attending it. I think there has to be value in terms of the content you discover while you're there. I think businesses get that and they know that you can't just have a conference because it's a thing that you always do. But I, I still find that we encounter challenges in terms of the gap between the ambition and the reality of what's delivered. So you'll find that everybody in the room when you're planning an event of this type will be full of enthusiasm and excitement about what the possibilities are and what they'd like to achieve. And then reality rears its ugly head and things like budget and logistics and room sizes and capability and you know sometimes stayed management decisions and preconceptions about what might happen if you cede too much control to your audience all of those things sometimes sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater a little bit and you end up not delivering the kind of revolutionary event that you really wanted to i do think that um events like the ted talks have effectively given people a successful demonstration of what could be achieved mm -hmm. if they were willing to break from convention. But that point I made at the start about I don't think we're in the renaissance yet is simply about the fact that we'll reach a tipping point where more people have embraced what Ted has been able to achieve. And I think once we get there, then we'll fully be in the renaissance. Was the renaissance driven by audiences actually saying, no, we're not accepting this anymore? We, we, we refuse to go something, just be bored to death by PowerPoint. It's amazing, it's amazing how resilient audiences are. Um, yeah. I, I, 
I, I sometimes see it coming the other way, where I think that there's something that's happened in the business world where senior people have started to realize that events can make them famous. Um, and I think, you know, as with a lot of things in, in this world, you can, you can um, thank Steve Jobs for that. I think Steve Jobs and what sort of colloquially became known as, as Steve Notes, his kind of keynote presentations, had a huge effect in changing how people saw the power of live. You know, before those keynotes, events just weren't used in that way to make an individual and make a company famous. And I've quite often been in situations where senior clients have taken me aside and kind of said, I'd like to do a bit of a, you know, I'd like to do a bit of a Steve Jobs on this one. And then, of course, you get into those wonderful conversations about how much energy and, and rehearsal and um, preparation that takes. But I think to sort of answer your point, I think the, the energy is coming from two directions. Yes, I think it's coming from the audience in terms of Generation Y and all the kind of, you know, exciting sort of things that we could probably point to there or millennials. I never quit knowing that because sort I of never know exactly which one's which. Um, but equally, I think the, the energy is also coming from, from senior people in business as well. Is it, is it tough, though, for, as an organiser to... Um when people come to you and they say, I want to do a Steve Jobs on this one, when, when people actually understand and realise the effort and the preparation that's gone into those particular examples, can people realistically deliver that in everyday conference scenarios? It's, it's really difficult. And the reason it's difficult is because actually, if I'm speaking honestly, those Apple keynotes are not great events. They're not great experiences. What they are are the combination of product that people want and a story that they want to hear all wrapped up with a speaker who knows how to deliver that content compellingly. As an experience, it breaks all the rules. It's everybody sitting theatre style, watching a stage, waiting for the content to be delivered. They're timed to the nanosecond, you know, right down to the anecdote that I love about why every pack shot of an Apple product. Do you know this? No. Every, if you ever look at a pack shot of an Apple product, the time is always 9.41. Because when Steve Jobs started doing his keynotes... 9.41 was the optimal time when he would reveal the product. So they wanted to make sure that the pack shots they used in the presentations were always like they were being delivered in real time. So whenever you look at like an iPhone <laughs> box or an iPad box, it's always 9.41. I shall be checking that. There may be an element of the apocryphal be. myth about that, but generally that is accepted wisdom. But anyway, the point is, Steve Jobs knew how to be a compelling speaker. Man in a black sweater on a black stage in front of you know, a keynote screen, walking back and forth talking. If you took any other organization, any other content delivery system, that would be death by PowerPoint. But the persona, the delivery, and the audience's desire to hear the story that he was telling made it compelling. If somebody else looks at that and they say, we want a Steve Jobs experience, what they're actually saying is, we want a senior manager with that degree of gravitas, personability charisma charisma all of those things that's really what they want and sometimes we find that there's a disconnect if an, a client comes to us and says we want an apple style event what they mean is they want the rest of the world who aren't attending that event to care as much about their conference as somebody would about something that was happening in the I want to say the Year de Buena Center. I can't remember the... It's, a, it's someone's name, and it's the center in San Francisco where they do all of those Apple keynotes. Um, but it's a, yeah, it's a really but famous... But I think, I, you know, 
I think there's a, there's an interesting thing there in that often when people talk about you know to use your your expression a renaissance in conferences they imagine that has to mean lots of people sort of running around doing different stuff kind of unconference style or making it all really experiential mm. or bringing in loads of new tech all of those things can be massively important and can be a can be a part of a certain type of event but there's still a place for conferences where people are just sitting and listening. It's only one type of conference, but it's it's valuable. That's you know all TED TED is just people sitting there listening. They are examples of amazing storytelling, and sometimes the energy can come from the storytelling. Sometimes the energy comes from the collaboration that you're fostering in the audience. So I think there's there's different types of event there events, and we have to be sort of mindful of that. Mm. The more I think about it, the, the more I'm intrigued by this use of the word renaissance. And again, if you look at the renaissance as an art movement, it was about the birth of humanism. So it was when all the artists and the poets and the writers shifted their obsession or their focus from God and religion to mankind. And I think there is a really interesting parallel there to come back to your earlier question about was this a movement that originated in a dissatisfied audience mm -hmm. it wasn't because generally the audience will only answer the questions that you ask them about their event experience and those questionnaires tend to be geared towards the logistics of the experience you know was the food good did the sessions run long enough how was your transfer from the airport very conventional things they're never open questions that allow them to say well if i was inventing this conference here's what it would be like mm -hmm. But that interesting parallel with the notion of the Renaissance, I think maybe that's where the Renaissance will be, is the shift away from what the brand or business wants to push onto an audience and taking a more humanistic approach, which is saying, what do the audience need to hear from us and how can we deliver that experience to them? Well, it's interesting. So, so whilst it may not have been a dissatisfaction amongst audiences that's driven any change or shift... Was there an acceptance from organisers that they did have to start doing something differently? And, and whilst I don't want to stray too far into the realms of technology, we should identify the fact that with so much more media and so much a, a greater ability to access information quickly and easily, mm. inevitably there must have been a pressure on conference organisers and speakers to deliver better content. Yeah, I think, well, listen, I think, I think events have always had two fundamental values they've delivered content and they've delivered connections and for a long time live events had something of a monopoly on that stuff you know it used to be that if you wanted to hear from a, a smart person before they'd written their book you had to pay to go to a conference or you had to go to a a, a corporate conference to hear from them and and likewise with connections if you wanted to meet new people that that's what you did and today there is content everywhere. There's more content than any of us could ever, you know, get through. So pure content doesn't become a driver. And connections, you look at the, the laser precision of a LinkedIn connection compared to going to a normal conference and standing around in the lobby sort of looking at a newspaper. And hope that someone will talk to you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah or exactly. you see someone you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so so what's happened is because because those things have been... Uh, because that monopoly has ended, or those monopolies have ended, conferences have had to look at new ways of delivering value, and that's where I think you know, you know, how do you, how do you use a conference to um, 
to help people collaborate, help people come together? How do you use a conference to actually help people find other people at the event who are going to be of value to them? How do you deliver content um, in memorable or, or, or entertaining ways? How do you entertain people at a conference? So these, these concepts are, kind of, are coming more and more to the fore. And, and you, you, know, you mentioned it, te technology and, and innovation in other areas are, are in, you know, incredibly powerful forces. I think it's a, I just wanted to come back to your initial question. You know, if it wasn't the audience demanding a change in the conference format or the very concept of conferences themselves, then where did this motivation for evolving uh, the format come from? And I think there are really three points. I would love to say that event organizers, you know, within client organizations just woke up one morning and said, hang on a minute, we've been doing this wrong all of these years. Let's Hang on try. a minute, we're in the middle of a renaissance. I know, yeah. <laughs> you don't have those kind of epiphanies, but I think there are three key movements that you can probably track over the last five to ten years. The first one, obviously, is the growth of social media. And I know Jez mentioned, the, I think your phrase, the lightning precision of, of a LinkedIn contact. Mm -hmm. Not just that, but also the empowerment that social media has brought to everyone in terms of giving them a voice amongst a variety of different communities, you know, their local physical community, their friendship networks, their old school and college alumni, former colleagues, current colleagues. This kind of soup of social media has made people a lot more confident expressing their own points of view. So whereas 10 years ago, someone might go to a conference and think, yeah, I'm happy just to sit here and listen to people who know more than me. They've suddenly been empowered um, by social media to recognize that they have a voice, they have a stake in the proceedings as well. So I think events have had to evolve to incorporate that empowered audience. I think the second one was the recession, because I, I probably joined the events industry just shy of 10 years ago, and it was around that time that you know we had the global recession. And for a while, for about 18 months, every client that we spoke to was obsessed with the notion of, do we really need events? Is this not just a... A luxury that we can't afford or either or if you do have an event you all have to do it really seriously and can't look like we're having fun yeah yeah, yeah. Disaster. Well, it, it, there was that which i think dried everything out for a little while but also there was the notion of what well, can we do it virtually so suddenly i think every organization and its in-house event teams had to really look at what they were delivering and what value was being returned to the business because they suddenly had to fight harder to justify the expense of putting on that event in the first instance and then I think the third one, and this is an ongoing challenge, and if I could snap my fingers and change one thing about the industry, it would be this, is that people who work in the industry are so busy all the time that they don't get the chance to visit other events. So they don't get to see what best practice looks like. They don't get to turn up at somebody else's event without thinking, oh God, I'm responsible for every single deliverable that happens in the next 12 hours. They don't get to just experience it as a delegate. But I think they're mindful that that is a, an area where they may be lacking in some experience. And it's certainly something we're trying hard to do is encourage clients to step outside of their immediate responsibilities and experience events as a delegate. Because once they do, they start to realize all of the things where there are massive missed opportunities that you know, don't take an, an enormous budget or months and months of planning to just get right. I think that's, I think that's a brilliant point about... Um people who work in events experiencing other things. If, if you look at the 
what I would say are some of the most interesting event formats that have um, arisen in recent years. None of them have been generated by event organizers. So the do lectures, I don't know if people know what the do lectures are, but, you know, Google it. Absolutely amazing event that happens in a Welsh village, in a a teepee village in the Welsh hills. The guy who set that up, and incidentally, it's now running in California and Australia. That guy's not an event guy. The Dublin Event Forum, or Dublin Event Summit, um, which has 22,000 paying people going to it, has only been going for four years, I think, um, set up by um, a mathematician, somebody who studies algorithms. TED wasn't set up by event people, et cetera, et cetera. So I think what can happen is that people who aren't, um, don't have the, the responsibility and the risk on their shoulders that all of us who work in the corporate sector have, which makes it hard for people to really, really innovate. Um, but what we do, what, what, what is beholden on us is exactly what Gareth said, to go out and experience all of this stuff that organically grows around us. Is, is uh, the examples that you've given a classic case of, of not seeing the wood for the trees and, and actually the fact that people from outside the industry looking in can see that there were issues or things that could be done better actually helped them to go and start these events and, and we can then learn from that and, and all take a step back. I, d- I don't think it does us any favours to, to try and position it as an us and them. I think it's just recognising the simple fact that people who aren't caught up in the day-to-day minutiae of being an event manager or an event organiser, just focus on what experience do I want to create that's going to deliver a transformative moment or a memorable Mm. moment for the people who attend it. Once I've figured out what that is, well, I'll figure out how to do all the other bits that enable us to deliver that. Where where do people who work in advertising get their ideas from? They get it from film and television and magazines and stuff like that. They don't get it from reading campaign magazines. Exactly that. And so it's exactly the same in our industry. We all need to be you know, have our eyes open and be out there. But the fact is, there are people who are having great ideas that somehow transform into an event or an experience and that, you know, someone then badges it and commoditizes it or commercializes it and suddenly that becomes a thing. And I, I think what we tend to do with an industry, and I, I include agencies in this, this isn't just um, about people who work client-side, I think we all get caught up in the in the fundamentals of the deliverable we start from the point of view of well we know we're going to need a budget and we're going to need a a bunch of sheets and excel spreadsheets that document how we go about delivering this and then we can figure out what it's supposed to be and i think people who aren't in the event industry don't have those hindrances they just create something because it speaks to a passion or or um, an area of interest that they've got, and then the rest of it happens afterwards. Well, let's just highlight to people in a little bit more detail um, about the Do Lectures. Uh, I've just got a, a quick passage here. In 2008, the Do Lectures were born in an inexplicable cross-section between a festival and a conference. There were no name badges, no bad coffee, and impersonal drafty lecture halls. Instead, an intimate number of speakers and attendees gathered under canvas on the west coast of Wales and shared the whole three-day experience as a community. Ate together, camped together, shared a beer around a fire together, etc., etc. Now, it might seem very, very hippie, but the, the concept of, of breaking down the barrier between, we use the term us and them, uh, earlier on in the podcast but the the us and them but is there an us and them or was there an us and them between speakers audience and never the twain shall meet yeah yeah 
And, yeah. well, and also, I think, you know, what, what, what I take from the do lectures is that um, the, that sometimes absorbing an idea can sometimes be quite difficult. So if you go and listen to somebody on stage and they tell you some stuff, you sort of start to, you know, you start to sort of um, digest it and then you either sort of take it on board or you forget about it or it goes into the too difficult pile. What the do lectures do really well is that everybody then spends the evening around the campfire, you know, talking and stuff like that. And, that, you know, so that's a really, in, to me, that's a really interesting um, behavior within an event. So when I look to design events now, I'm always thinking about, okay, well, there's going to be the, there's going to be the idea delivery, but then how am I going to help people digest that idea? How am I going to pe help people share that idea? And for, for organizations, the idea that you've got all of these super bright people in your company who are possibly only ever in a room together once a year, and what you're going to do is just line them up and talk at them, yeah. seems I that, can't be, that can't be all there is. What you've got to then do is give them the opportunity to share their half-formed ideas with each other, which have hopefully been inspired mm -hmm. and sparked and led and given direction from what they've heard from the stage. And then, so how do you let them have those conversations? And then in an ideal world, how can you capture those ideas and feed them back yeah. into the community and the organization? I mean, I, I've been sort of banging the same drum for about 18 months now. I, I remember I was in a conversation with someone and they were talking about the budget of their event and they were really resistant to the notion of much in the way of interactivity or empowering the audience to have a say in the dialogue of the event. And this was for senior managers. And it's quite a big conference, actually. Something like 500 people, 500 senior leaders from all around mm -hmm. the world. And I just remember, I, I made the point at the time, um, when you look at the budget of your event, you're thinking about line items. What is this going to cost me? What am I going to have to sign off when I press the go button for this event? And what the budget never includes is the cost to the business of 500 senior leaders being out of the office for five working days. Mm -hmm. You know, day to travel each way because they're coming from all over the world in a three-day conference. That's a week times 500 people. What is the cost to your business of, of that alone before you spend a penny on travel costs, hotel and accommodation and food and venue hire and entertainment and all of that? That, to me, is a massive cost that people are overlooking. And that, to me, is also the most compelling argument for giving them an opportunity, as Jess says, to have a say in the proceedings, not in the unconference style of turning up and, right, let's put on a show here right now, let's decide what the content's going to be. It's not that, but it's about recognising that if you've got the 500 smartest people in your business in one room for one time a year why the hell aren't you listening to them more? Why aren't you letting them do more of the talking? Mm. Because they're going to give you the ideas that will give your company its future direction. And I think it's a, it's a real missed opportunity. The other thing, of course, is, and it's, it's tied into this notion of the, the real and intangible expense of putting on an event like this, I think is also the need that people have, and we all do it, to fill every minute of the day. Because I think the other thing that Jez was talking about there with the, the do event is that it recognizes the value of downtime, the importance of processing the information that you've taken in. The human brain can only absorb so much information at a time. But there's a tendency when planning a conference to think, well, we've got them for one day. We need to start the content at 8.15, so mm, coffee's at 8. 
They can be in at 8.15. We'll maybe start at 8.30. Give them 45 minutes for lunch. And we'll keep it going till about 6 o'clock. We've all been to those events. And we've all reached 3 o'clock. And we just want to die. And the fact is, if you had shorter sessions, less content, but more time to actually process what you've taken on board, bounce ideas off the people that you're at the conference with, maybe even take conversations into the evening, it's less about filling every minute with delivered content and more about recognizing what the word conference means, which is to confer. Uh, uh, Now on that note, why then, and maybe you can't answer this, but why when you hear and see so many event organizers and conference planners and they they have long planning meetings months in advance and every day they're talking about content and what they're going to do differently and yet when you actually get to the conference itself it's basically the same format as every other conference you've ever been to historically meet coffee session breakout lunch session breakout go home um is the mould genuinely being broken now with these shorter sessions, with more interactivity? Is it a very, very slow process? Or, or, or are we seeing quite a major shift to this different style of conference? Yeah, I think we are. I mean, I don't know. It depends, depends who organises them. But um, uh, there's, definitely a, there's definitely a hunger for changing things. And pe- people are changing things. And sometimes those you know, changes can seem, they can seem small or in, inconsequential. But actually, th- there's a massive shift. And I... I I don't know. I don't see many events these days where people come in and have like, you know, the traditional hour long sales, you know, presentation from the <laughs> sales director and stuff. I suppose it goes on somewhere, but less and less. I think that there are pockets of the industry where those old school formats still rule the roost. And um, and I think we have to be fair to to the organizers who still delivered those types of events. There are all sorts of reasons why those are the case sometimes the delegates actually say do you know what i get exactly what i need out of this kind of an event sometimes it's senior management in the business who have a very old school notion of what the event should be and that format is written in stone and that's just the way it has to be i think one of the advantages that we have um at gpj is a, a lot of our clients we've worked with for a number of years and so we're there on the ground delivering the event and then we actually get to analyze the feedback we get to we make sure that we experience the the event itself the way a delegate does through their eyes we look at all kinds of feedback we monitor social media traffic and that really enables us to ensure that year on year we're always refining the experience and like jess says it's not about a massive overnight shift and suddenly it's a completely different event but it means those iterative changes you get to change year on year so every year it feels a little bit better because no one's going to wake up one morning and say right let's throw everything out and start over because they just can't afford to it's the same as integrating new technology no one can afford to take such a risk with the format so they have to make incremental changes with each successive event and gradually push them in the right direction and that's why i don't think we've arrived at nirvana yet but i think there are lots of pockets of insight right across the industry, both agency side and client side, that recognize what Nirvana might look like. Mm-hmm. And we're all in our own individual ways working towards that. That's also, it's also sort of where are you pushing, isn't it? Because I think, um, you know, the, the, the way we like to approach things is to always think about where's, where's the value for a particular audience and that values, you know, is it, is it in them being able to sort of step out of the fast lane of day-to-day business to, to, to focus on the longer term 
um, you know, the bigger sort of things to get away from the firefighting? Is it about connecting with other people in the business? Is it about the opportunity to collaborate? Is it the having content to cascade, whatever? So once you've identified where those key value areas are for your audience, you then sit down and then you look at all the amazing inspiration that's out there in terms of formats or the amazing technology that's out there and you decide which ones you're going to you know, deploy in order to upweight those, th- mm. th- those value areas. Um, so I think it's, yeah, it's, it's not necessarily a, a rip it up and start again every year. If it would, it, if it would, it would fail because there's, there's so many um, ingrained behaviors within conferences and, and some, of those are, some of those are there for good reasons. And we also have to be mindful that in many cases, people are paying to attend these events. Mm-hmm. And so if you change everything overnight from what they experienced last year, there's a danger that they could turn up and say, hang on, this isn't what I thought I was paying for. So you have to make sure that you're, you're delivering the value that you've promised from their attendance, but then surprising them with maybe some extra additional elements or engagements that they weren't expecting that means that when they go away, they think, well, I have to attend this next year because this was better than I even remember it being last year. I think that's where the, the real value comes in. I'm curious to get your own personal experiences of analysis of content prior to a conference or a seminar or an event. Um, depending on the on the nature of the of the conference and the subject matter that it's dealing with, I'd like to know how much effort is put in on on actually looking at speaker presentations and the content that they will deliver prior to the event itself because I think we've all seen scenarios and examples before where somebody steps up on stage to deliver their particular session at the conference and clearly nobody in the organisation that's putting that event on has seen that and they have that realisation where this content is actually not very good at all speaking as two experienced professionals we have of course never experienced that (laughs) but we've been at third party events where we've seen it happen um i I think it's a fair point i funnily enough one of the things you can always guarantee that a client will say to you in a pitch scenario if you go in to meet a new client a prospect there will come a point during the q a session usually after you've discussed the budget where someone will say how are you at dealing with last minute changes what happens if our MD rocks up the night before and decides he wants to change his presentation? I've yet to come out of a meeting where that isn't a question, am I right? And that gives you an astonishing insight into the pressures that our clients are constantly under, that they're trying to keep all of these moving parts in the right direction, knowing that at any point there could be a massive curveball. And so I and you know, I don't want to speak for Jez, but I'm sure he'd agree with me that <laughs> we spend so much of our time having to preemptively address the risk of last minute changes. So what you described there as a scenario never happens at our events because we have to deliver a completely seamless experience because from the point of view of the delegate they don't care if someone's arriving last minute if they're a last minute substitution for a speaker or if two minutes ago there was a formatting issue because someone brought a keynote file and it's got to be converted into powerpoint or they were working on 16 by 9 and it's going out in 4.3 all of those technical issues are where a really great production team which is a fundamental part of the agency experience really bring all of their expertise to bear because they deliver a seamless transition. You know, we spend the time doing the speaker rehearsals and if the speaker can't be there on site for rehearsal, then we'll find a way of doing it virtually. We'll make sure that they're familiar not only with the content, but with the layout of the space, where the, um, 
where the screens are going to be, where their sight lines are going to be, whether they need comfort monitors or notes or whatever it is that makes them happiest. Because really, I think that's one of the areas where some of the fundamental technological um, revolutions have really come in that make it easier to do all of that stuff so that you can avoid those kinds of scenarios. Yeah, and I think... um also, I think there's two there's 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 two levels that you can look at look at it from. One is the um, the overall event narrative. So when you, when you're planning an event, before you even get down to thinking about who's going to talk and 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 their individual presentations, actually, have you got a really strong narrative for the event? Are you priming people at the beginning for what type of event it's going to be? Are you do you have some contention? I think that's one of the things that a lot of events in the corporate world lack is actually everybody's kind of like in vehement agreement about stuff mm. and there's there's nothing really pulling the conversation in a you know in a sort of um adversarial way so you know do you have that and then you know what do you, what happens at the end how you what are you expecting people to do with what they've heard so you need that kind of top line narrative running through the event then once you've got that you start to slot in the different bits of content in a logical order and in the right place and you do all of the stuff that gareth said and you will still have people who turn up at the last minute and, you know, there'll still be problems. But that's, you know, that's the power of live. You know, that's the, you know, that's why people love things like Live Aid and stuff like that. But you, what you've got to do is you've got to do it with your eyes open and in a, in a clever framework. T- taking it back a stage before some of the, the, the areas that you're analysing there and identifying there, when it comes to actually just simply choosing venues and location... Um, I'm keen to get your thoughts for, for people who might be listening to this podcast who are working in, in the conference, organi- in organising conference, but perhaps at a, a smaller scale or on a regional level in, in cities around the UK. Um, what are some of the things that, they, that they, they've historically got wrong in terms of just selecting who the delegates are or who their audience are and selecting the right type of venue to actually host their event in? Because, you know, conference, okay, book the nearest hotel function room with the screen and that will suffice what should they be looking for i think i think there's a there's a million different things that that you could really address there i think one of them comes back to the point that jez just made about thinking strategically about the purpose of the event why is the event taking place what is it that you want people to get out of it because i think once if you have those conversations up front then you can make sure that if writing the venue brief is as strategically aligned as creating the visual identity or you know um, designing the the website or the app that's going to support the delegate experience on site all of those things are fundamentally tied together and you can look at the kind of experience you want to create and then put out the according venue brief i i don't think we really work in a world now where where kind of somebody sort of just does puts their hand <laughs> over their eyes and just points at a map. I, I don't think decisions are made in that kind of arbitrary manner anymore. Although, they, although you know, I think it's fair to say that, you know, there's a finite number of venues out there. And, some yeah. t- you know, and sometimes you end up with venues for an event that you would never have chosen. Yeah. But, there's, but, but that's the there venue because no that's choice. the venue. That, that's and I don't think that's, and that's not necessarily a deal breaker. No, you know I mean, you can have a fantastic a event in a completely inappropriate venue if you've got the strategy and the narrative right. Okay. And, and if you've got an agency that, that spends the time doing the, the site research, going on site, testing the menu, um, working out what the in-house AV setup is like, looking at what's going to need to be supplemented or replaced or can maybe 
be enhanced and entering into those negotiations with the venue management on your behalf um that's really what a, a full service agency should be offering so that you know even if a decision has been made you know sometimes what might happen is a client might sign a three-year contract to do an event but then the event is so successful that in the third year it might have almost outgrown the venue so that's really where creative thinking goes beyond the look and feel of the event and creative thinking is about how you solve some of these logistics problems born out of your own success those are the kinds of issues that you need to address one thing i was, I was, I was keen to ask today is the difference between a standalone conference and a conference stroke seminar program that runs alongside something like a, an exhibition be it mm-hmm. consumer or trade show and whether or not whether or not there are any fundamental differences in 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 programming a conference to run alongside an exhibition as opposed to a standalone conference gareth (laughs) (laughs) neatly deflected um short answer no there isn't if you're doing a conference it's about how do we want to facilitate people coming together discovering content hearing from compelling speakers, hopefully having an opportunity to contribute to the discussion and coming away with some sense of a takeout or an action that they're going to implement as a consequence of having attended. If there's an exhibition bolted onto that, then I think the the kind of joint team of you know the client and the agency have an obligation to make sure that we do everything that we can to um, share top-level insights about what the dialogue is going to be within the conference Mm -hmm. so that people who are paying money to exhibit at the exhibition alongside are in some way connected to the narrative. So whether it's about giving them opportunities to contribute to the content being delivered in the conference or whether it's just about understanding how the content agenda is being broken down over the day or over the three days so that the stories that they're telling on their exhibition stands in some way correlate with the the stories and the content that people are discovering in the conference. So then from the, because all of this always comes back to the delegate. Um, There's a management side in terms of how you manage the different suppliers and partners, but really from the delegate's point of view, all they're really wanting is a joined up holistic experience. Mm -hmm. So if they're hearing compelling content, if they're hearing, you know, um, thought leadership and insights on the stage, that really is supposed to stimulate better business thinking. So when they then go into the exhibition, and they're meeting with partners and exhibitors, they should be able to take that conversation to the next level on account of what they've just heard. So we have an obligation to make sure that the exhibitors are in some way plugged into that conversation. Is that a difficult task to do, to, to make sure that you're avoiding this this notion that perhaps because they're exhibiting, that, that, that they've paid to be delivering that? Is it a very, very careful balance to make sure that the audience are not misled at all or or, or, or uh, misinterpreting why those organizations may be delivering content as well as having paid to exhibit somewhere i think in a b2b environment nobody comes in under any illusion about why exhibitors are there mm-hmm. um i think for us it's an opportunity to engage more deeply with the exhibitors and encourage them to embrace the potential of their participation in the event so you can come you can have a shell scheme and a little desk and a couple of stools and a laptop and give away boiled sweets and that's it or you can have a deeper level of conversation you could use iBeacon technology and you could actually Mm. deliver content as people are walking around the exhibition and that will bring people to you who are already primed to have a better kind of a conversation 
I think all of those things are about helping exhibitors understand that they're a fundamental part of the overall conference and exhibition experience. And that really is just an opportunity not to be missed. So I think for us, it's an educational process. I think it's quite, it's interesting, isn't it? Because exhibitions used to only appeal to one learning behavior, really. So you'd walk around and I suppose you'd walk around, you'd sort of read things that were on exhibition stands. And if you were slightly extrovert, you'd try and hang around and talk to the person who was manning the stand. That's that's the sort of old old school way, way. But now, as Gareth says, with technology, you can go around, you can be the type of person. I, I'm probably that type of person. I don't really want to go around talking to everybody, but I'm quite happy to go around seeing what interests me and harvest information to take back and to have to 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 absorb later that's useful to me the other thing that i think people are doing more and more and i've seen seen you guys do is when the exhibition when the exhibitors when you have little kind of pop-up stages within the exhibition area and and the exhibitors you know each one gets sort of 10 minutes to stand up Mm. and tell Mm -hmm. you so you know so you don't have to be the lucky person who gets the one-to-one face time on the exhibition stand you can join a little group of people who are milling around and are, are, are hearing the top line story and maybe ask a question if you want to. So the, the audience experience is becoming much more multidimensional and therefore more valuable. Creating these different ways to harvest content, like you say, you know, the, the pop-up stages or eye beacons that are delivering information as you're going past a particular part of the stand. They're all ways, really, of just allowing visitors to harvest content in a format that they are comfortable with. Well, they're curating. They're creating... Sorry, not cre- curating their own experience. They're, they're coming to it and they're thinking, these are the things that I want to get out of it. These are the exhibitors whose, whose content or information I want to know more about. These are the people I want to completely pass over. These are the people I'd like to network with beyond or outside of this event. And that comes back to the point we were discussing earlier about how social media has empowered people to be more in control of mm-hmm. every kind of experience they have from the way they digest um, TV shows in binge viewing slots on Netflix through to how they aggregate content and share it and transmit it via Twitter or, or Facebook. We used to be more in control of the experiences that we have. And I think conferences are really no different. Now, it's interesting, on, on that particular subject, I hear a lot of people talking about amplifying their event using the available technologies now beyond the event itself mm-hmm. so that it doesn't necessarily end at... 5.30 in the afternoon, it goes on beyond there. However, just doing a, a quick quick search before today's podcast, some brave souls out there are sending content to their delegates before the event itself and then using the conference uh, day or days to then expand on what they've mm-hmm. already shared with their delegates mm-hmm. to then create a conversation. Have you had any examples of that? Yeah, and well, and think... what are your thoughts on, on doing it that way? Well, that, that, that's... That is in a lot of ways inspired by changes that are happening in the world of education. So there's, a, there's an expression that they use in, in, in that world, which is the flipped classroom. The, the concept being that students come to the class having done some study and then, or having absorbed the fundamentals and then can spend the classroom time discussing with their with their peers in in the room and that's exact and that's that you know that's proven to be incredibly valuable in education and that's exactly the model now that we're seeing event organizers you know borrow from and i think it's it's massively exciting and all you need what the one thing that depends on is you've got an engaged audience indeed and they they have to understand the value that they will derive from attending the event 
will come directly from how much they're willing to contribute. Because ultimately, if you're really just going to go into sort of passive broadcast mode, get your audience sitting facing a stage and just throw content at them for a day or three days, there's a point where every person in that audience is going to sit there and think, could you not have just bundled this up as a zip file and sent me the PowerPoints? I could go through it in my own time. I could have saved myself to self a fortune. So really what you're doing there is you're talking about a way of driving their participation, encouraging them to play a bigger role in the event itself, which I think makes for a more compelling attendee experience. But really, the no fundamentally, the notion of sending stuff out before the event, the pre-read is as old as time. It just used to be paper that you sent out rather than... And that there are still pockets of the industry where paper is still sent out. Um, but that notion of here are the things that we're going to be talking about gen up beforehand, I, I, th I think it's a great principle because you get more value out of having ha that point we made earlier about processing time, having had a chance to take this information on board and think about what this means to me, I'm going to come to this event fueled and ready to talk, ready to network, ready to collaborate, ready to brainstorm, all of the good things that really make the conference high value to everyone there. I, I think it's important that any conference organizers that, that are listening to this podcast get in touch i think it's fair to say everyone would like to know what everybody else is up to and understanding what, what other organizers are doing how they're adapting how they're developing and evolving their events um, so if you are a conference organizer listen to the podcast please get in touch um, you can tweet us at talking events um, tell us what you're you're doing differently or how you are evolving um, a video of today's podcast will be available through the Event Industry News YouTube channel and via the Event Industry News website. It leaves me to thank Gareth Dimlow from George B. Johnson for joining us today. Jez Paxman from Live Union, thanks for joining the podcast. My name is James Dixon and this is Talking Events. Mm -hmm.